Today's podcast is brought to you by IQ Air. Founded in 1963, IQ Air are the world's leading air quality experts. Indoor air pollution can be up to 100 times worse than outdoor air pollution due to cooking fumes, cleaning chemicals, and off-gassing from home furnishings. AirVisual Pro uses professional-grade sensors, AI smart technology, and a user-friendly interface to provide real-time, hyper-local measurements of common indoor air pollutants like PM2.5 and CO2. AirVisual Pro measures your air quality readings to give you personalized alerts and tips to help you reduce your pollution exposure. See the big picture by comparing your own air quality side-by-side to data from a growing database of over 60,000 sensors worldwide, and analyze your local pollution patterns with 72-hour historical and forecast data. With smart home integration, you can connect your AirVisual Pro to your home HVAC system and act Activate whole house filtration systems such as the IQ Air Perfect 16 for a truly pollutant free smart home. Don't forget to download the Air Visual smartphone app, the number one air quality app worldwide, trusted by millions. Go to www.iqair.com forward slash podcast or call at 800 500 4 Air to learn more. That's www.iqair.com forward slash podcast or call 1-800-500-4247. IQ Air, first in air quality. Welcome to the Building Science Podcast. Welcome to the Building Science To the Building Science Podcast. Welcome to the Building Science Podcast. Bringing the human factor to architecture and design. Brought to you by Positive Energy in Austin, Texas. Okay, welcome back, everybody. Welcome back to the Building Science Podcast. I'm Christoph Irwin here, as always, with my friend and sidekick, Miguel. He's had too much caffeine today. I'm also thrilled to be here with Z Smith and Kelly Wotella. Z is, they're both with SQ Dumas Ripple in New Orleans. Z, please say hello to our audience and uh, tell them what your role or roles are with sure. SQ Dumas Ripple. Sure. Well, th- thanks for having me on um, or us on. Uh, mm. I'm uh, a principal and also I'm the director of sustainability and building performance here at SQ Dumas Ripple. We're a firm of about 50 people uh, working, um, about half of our work is very local and about half of it is national on all different kinds of building types. My role, uh, I I like the uh, Verge Company Manual where they talk about they're looking for T-shaped people, people who are very broad but also very deep in at least one good thing. And so you have a kind of a T-shaped personality. So my, my, my arms, if I'm standing there looking like a T, are to try to touch everything we do in this firm to raise the bar on sustainability. And when I say sustainability, I mean things in service of uh, human performance uh, uh, while at the same time being um, responsible and, and hopefully ultimately a net positive for the planet. Uh, and then I get the pleasure of uh, driving particular projects forward as in the no- role that would be more normal in many architecture firms as a, as a principal for those projects. So I see a lot of venturing off points, but I'm going to switch over to Kelsey. Now, Kelsey, what's your role at 
uh, SQ Dumas Ripple? So I am the year-long research fellow at SQ Dumas Ripple. It's a program that they started five or six years ago, um, maybe a little more than that. Excuse me if I'm wrong there. And um, the topic changes every year. And Z is kind of the director of this along with everything else that he's doing for the firm. And this year's topic is Paths to Carbon Zero. So it's very relevant to things going on in the AIA currently. Um, focused both on embodied and operational carbon of buildings. And I am studying the work we're doing here at SQD Miserable, um, doing 12 case studies ranging from new construction to retrofits and seeing how we can meet architecture 2030 goals and net zero goals of operational. So that's ranging again, operational and embodied carbon. Um, and that's stuff that probably deserves going into a little more depth as we continue. Absolutely. Yeah. And in fact, oh, I'm so torn. We should just go right there. But I, I got to ask you one question, Z. Um, yes. You're a T-shaped person. What is the uh, vertical axis of the T? What would you say is your deep dimension? Well, the, there's there's an organizational question where the deep dimension is simply that I have, uh, in, in every project in an architecture firm, there's usually a principal in charge who becomes the, the where the buck stops person for handling the relationship uh, with the client, but also adherence to what the project goals are and so on. Whereas in the arms of the T-shaped person, you know, I can come in and, if you will, photobomb a project uh, where I interact and uh, make my uh, uh, trenchant observations and then get to leave the room. Um, and so, you know, there's that, great, there's that great Mark Twain quote about always obey your parents when they're in the room. And uh, I think that in sustainability, uh, we often have in architectural practice this challenge that the, the quote, sustainability people, unquote, um, aren't always in the room. And so mm -hmm. your mechanism for greatest leverage is to um, uh, draw out, instill, and reinforce and empower um, every uh, employee in an architectural practice for advancing what we call in that very broad sense, building science and sustainability, um, and so that that way you don't have to be in the room. So, that, you know, my largest role, I think, when I think about all the different things I'm doing within the firm and within the practice and within education is, I guess it's traceable to um, when my daughter was four, uh, she uh, came to me with some question about biology. And uh, I said, well, why don't you ask your mom? She's an actual biologist. And she said, yeah, I could, but you're more explainable. And uh, by which <laughs> by which she meant, I think, that um, maybe my talent um, uh, isn't just uh, a technical training or a technical facility, but the ability to try to boil things down into um, easier to understand chunks that uh, highlight what is of greatest importance so that people can carry that forward. Because in architectural practice, everybody's a very busy person. And uh, as uh, my uh, former uh, colleague and certainly friend, Corey Squire, says, um, when, when they come and ask you for the code book, they don't really want the code book. What they want is the answer. And so yeah. uh, our, our role is to empower people uh, so that they have the answers or at least know who to go to with the questions. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's really important. And that, that's our goal today. By the way, listeners, our goal today is to talk about embodied carbon, sustainability, help you be more clear on operational versus embodied energy and why it's important. And uh, one of the, you know, maybe there's something like an 80-20 rule 
for embodied carbon. We'll see if we can get there. I think we would be well served to just jump right in because this is a big topic. And I know from previous podcasts, this will go fast uh, and define some terms. So I'm going to start with the hardest one because I think uh, it'll be entertaining. You you guys (laughs) both use the term sustainability. Mm -hmm. Um, and there's sort of a vernacular, you know, there's a UN definition of sustainability, which is mm-hmm. pretty crunchy, right? You know, living in yeah. a way that doesn't interfere with future generations doing the same. How do you guys define sustainability? You can each take a turn. Good luck. Kelsey? <laughs> uh, thanks, thanks for wishing me luck on that. Um, it, it is a, a broad term, certainly. So so especially because my focus, it, focus is on building materials and building practices and energy efficiency of buildings. That's kind of how I'm choosing to define sustainability currently to, to limit my scope um, because it's very easy to go a little too far and, and question where the line is. So, so my scope is really focusing on embodied carbon and operational carbon. And, and I think for me, what I'm hoping for, that my research will come to is that sustainability means reduction in both of those and um, optimization. Mm-hmm. Okay. Before we go into what those are, those embodied and operational, we'll go into Z. Sure. Pop quiz, hot shot, sustainability. <laughs> go. So the simplest definition is living in a way that you people could keep on living that way and it could possibly carry on. We're certainly burning through our bank account of yeah. fossil fuels. That's the obvious one. We're also burning through our bank account that we've been given this inheritance of ecological diversity. Um, we're burning through our bank account of groundwater. Um, anything that you look at, we're, we've been given an astonishing inheritance, and we think ourselves fabulously rich because we're improving the speed at which we can withdraw uh, from that bank account. Yeah. And that's not actually rich. That's just, you've just improved the, the speed at which you were burning through it. Future generations will look back and just be stunned uh, that, you know, we took this inheritance and literally set it on fire. So um, what sustainability about ultimately is uh, thinking about a way of living that we could keep doing. And that means living in a way where we are not decreasing our our stocks of resources, but also not um, doing great harm to uh, biodiversity, doing great harm to our own health. Yeah. So at every move, we can try to think about and ask ourselves the question, could people possibly live this way for a thousand years? How would that work? Yeah. And if we're ask- answering those questions, then questions about you know burning through our stocks of fossil fuels and throwing it into the atmosphere, well, that's obviously unsustainable. Burning mm-hmm. through our stocks of whether it's metals in the earth or cutting, clear-cutting down all the forests, well, that's obviously not sustainable. So if you invert that question and say, um, have there been ways of living on the earth that could have gone on forever? And you can find examples of that through history, whether it's the, you know, the strategy for the reconstruction of the temples of Ise in Japan, where uh, the tr- they know that wood will rot, and so they locate the, the mother temple in a forest, and the job of that forest is to keep growing trees so that uh, they can re- you know, have great trees for rebuilding that temple. 
they then realized that while they could make wood uh, temples that could last 200 years, if they just did one, 200 years later, there'd be no one who knew how to make such a temple. So they said part of sustainability was a cultural sustainability that said, we're going to build an identical copy of the temple on the next site over every 20 years, and then uh, flip it back to the first site. And so on. And what that means is that over three generations, you start out as a, an apprentice, and then when you're 40, you're a, a foreman, and when you're 60, you're the grand resource for how to do everything. Um, it's a way of building that can go on forever uh, because it's paced to the rate at which the, buildings, the building material can be replaced, mm-hmm. and yet it's also done with an awareness of how um, culture is preserved. So I think we see very few rare but inspirational examples of when we talk about sustainability in the built environment. Um, and our job now is to say, how can we support the astonishing level of health and well-being and education that, that ha- we have managed to achieve, where you know a century ago over half the population lived on uh, um, on less than a dollar a day, and today that's down to about fifteen percent, and we're on track to eliminate that uh, extreme poverty in the next ten years. That's an amazing achievement. But how do we do things like that, but do it in a way that the Earth could keep on going? That's our challenge, and it's really um, it's it's like a. It, you, asked, you, you set this question up as if it's a timed exam. <laughs> We're under this timed exam. We have about 10 years to wrap, you know, to figure this up, and then it's pencils down. I think to build on that, uh, just with the topic of sustainability, I think one of the biggest problems we're facing is this notion of disposability and waste, and that there is no way that things can be thrown away. And we're finding that that is not a use of the resource of land, of the space that we have um, to be filling things in landfills and, and that things are treated as not lasting, exactly the opposite of of the um, Japanese temple. And, and so people learn to devalue the things that they're surrounded by. And, and you need to appreciate and value and, and almost love your surroundings to, to sustain yeah. that lifestyle. Well, you know, it's interesting, it's interesting because you guys just took me from a kind of um, lighthearted place to talking about some crunchy science topics to a place that I think we all really need to go, which is a sense of heart and a sense of urgency. And I just want to bring up a comment that I think, I think it's a New Yorker cartoon. I remember it's these two guys sitting in front of a fireplace, these older guys saying, I remember when there was no damn environment. And, uh, you know, it's, it's a joke, but at the same time, <laughs> You know, people hear the word sustainability and you can watch it on their face. It just, it's kind of a, a, a turn off or the, the doors like on Get Smart, dun, 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 the doors just slam shut. And there's this sense of like, this isn't going to work. We're not going to achieve th- what you just, the vision you just put out there, Z, you know? And so why bother trying? Why stop? Why, why should we lie to ourselves that we're going to do it? But the other, I, I don't think people clue into the other legacy that we have. Like we're mammals, we're, you know, part of evolution. We might not be the last animal to achieve sentience and, you know, decision-making prowess of such magnitude that we can smoke through fossil fuels and species diversity and groundwater and metals. It's going to be so great 
when people can look back, you know, other sentient beings can look back and say, those humans are so awesome. They had the power to wipe out our planet. They turned it around just in time. And here we are thousands of years later. Oh, there's a no more exciting time or no more impactful time yeah. than today to be alive. Uh, I think that what makes this work so you know, rewarding uh, is that uh, to figure this out at this time, it's like every good, incredibly exciting, you know, movie that involves an airplane that's suddenly losing altitude and headed for the ground. <laughs> and, that, you know, right at the last minute, and then soars off into the universe. So that's what we're at. That's what we're on about. And, you know, the focus for, there are the always incredibly inspiring um, uh, TED Talks and stuff yeah. by Hans Rosling, where he's talked about the efforts that have happened over the last 50 years at improving education, especially um, um, access to education for women, for girls and women, um, against uh, the elimination of extreme poverty, uh, the spread of life expectancy, the shrinking of family sizes. We're making really great progress towards actual sustainability, and none of it has to do with a kind of a, um, a killjoy attitude. It's yeah. all about making it more fun, more fulfilling, more rich. That's the good news. The, the, the kind of dark underbelly of this astonishing transformation that's gone through with, you know, as we are on the trajectory to the elimination of poverty and so on, and the advancement of living standards, is that we're doing it by burning through this, uh, this stock. Yeah. Now, to be fair, most of the burning through is being done by a very small number of people and a very small number of corporations. Mm -hmm. And so it's not inherent that, you know, the thing that has taken the population of Bangladesh from a family size of seven to a family size of two and a half and a life expectancy of 38 to a life expectancy of 72, um, that transformation has not involved, they, the Bangladeshi population is not responsible, you know, for a, a, a it barely shows up on their footprint, their carbon footprint, compared with that of um, the in major industrialized nations. So they've managed to bring about that kind of transformation um, uh, while still having a relatively modest footprint. There's that great yeah. um, happiness index where they look at the product of kind of wellness times life expectancy times um, income, uh, income fairness divided by environmental footprint. And, you know, Bangladesh and Costa Rica are, the, are two of the highest ranked nations in that sort of an index. So that can all happen. Our goal, I think, Kelsey's work, the work that we're doing here, the work that y'all are doing, is to say, um, how can we have this astonishing level of well-being that's been achieved uh, and yet do it in a way that can carry on? And there's a kind of inelegance to the way that we've done it so far. There's that great Amory Lovins quote where he says, there are people who think that a brute, if brute force is not working, it must be because you're not using enough of it. <laughs> um, and, and a lot of design that we use in the States seems to be built around uh, how much brute force can we bring to bear to the problem. Um, as we get cleverer, we're finding ways to make uh, buildings that are um, lighter and lighter, but it's not about giving up. Um, comfort. It's in fact providing buildings that are more comfortable. It's on providing buildings that have better connections to nature, that have yeah. better connections to natural light. And so that's the fun thing about what your podcast is about and um, the work that we're doing is to just become a little bit more aware. And I think the bottom line behind that, the real enablement is um, you know, what I call the pencil diet, the most effective weight loss diet that there is, is involves a pencil where you, uh, you can eat whatever you want as long as you write it down. Oh, interesting. I and, um, 
the yeah, I know you don't need pencils, but uh, <laughs> that that it, what happens is once you know the consequences of things, you just become a little bit smarter, even subliminally. No one has to impose an absolute limit on things and so on. To just becoming aware, you start to make smarter choices. That's been found to be true in energy use. It's been found to be true in all kinds of areas. And so for us, for the last 30 years, the people, the architects who prided themselves on sustainability, probably the very first thing they talk about is, I want to make my building use more, uh, use energy more efficiently, um, with it being in mind that, you know, this has a consequence on fossil fuel use and so on. However, what's happened more recently is an awareness that we're getting pretty good at actually making relatively low energy buildings. And with the unstoppable reduction in price in renewable power sources like wind and solar, uh, we're headed to a world where net zero carbon neutral operation of buildings is uh, achievable. We're already seeing it in individual case studies, and huge sections of the planet are now committed to carbon neutral operation in the next 10 to 20 years for the majority of buildings. So that's all possible, and it's possible by being a little bit smarter. The harder nut to crack that we're just getting going on, I mean, a few people have been working on it for decades, but it's just in the last few years become much more widely appreciated, is this, I guess you could call it upfront carbon. We use the phrase embodied carbon, and it's a very confusing word because it's the idea as if the carbon is locked inside the building. <laughs> um, in the case of a wood building, the carbon is locked inside the building. But in many other buildings, the, the carbon the carbon is out doing its damage out in the environment. It's carbon that was CO2 that was emitted in service of building the yeah. building. And so what Kelsey has been focused on this year um, is this notion of how do we become, uh, if you will, carbon competent or carbon fluent so that we can think of these two things. We're super used to the idea in a project, in an architectural practice, of talking about money, whether it's upfront money or operating expense money. It's just money, right? And, and nobody thinks that there's a different kind of money involved in the running of a building than there is in the, in the building of the building. It's all just dollars, right? And yet, thinking with equal fluency about the carbon, the upfront carbon of building a building and the operational carbon of, build, of operating a building, for some reason, we've treated those as, as like uh, languages that are foreign to each other. And what our goal here is to try to make that a little bit easier to understand as one language. Okay, so that's carbon fluency. I agree that that is why we're here um, on the planet, perhaps, but definitely on this podcast to increase carbon fluency and uh, specifically in the realm of buildings. And just before we go to you, Kelsey, I'm going to ask you a question here, but just a building, something we think we know what it is. It's a building. There it is, just sitting there. But if you want to see with carbon fluent eyes, you'll start to recognize that a building is a snapshot in time of a vast array of energy and resource flows. It's coming from somewhere. It's going to somewhere. And seeing with those eyes is something that is important for us. So Kelsey, can you tell us why it matters to see buildings with a carbon fluent uh, vision? Yeah. And I, I would like, um, I think sometimes, you know, when you open your eyes in the dark, it's scary for a moment. Mm. So, um, open your eyes and turn the light on right away and don't, don't be scared of this because I, I think that we, we have a huge opportunity here. The, the building op- industry accounts for 40% of global emissions worldwide. And that's broken up into different pieces of the building. Like you said, like, I'm here looking out a window at a hotel and 
most people just say, okay, that's a building. And now that I've started to study this, I'm breaking that down into building components. And first is, is breaking down the footprint of the building in terms of carbon into materials and construction and operations. So I can see air conditioners on top of the building, and that's a very visual sign of operations of the building. And that generally accounts for um, 70% of the building operations and materials and construction are 30%. And that's, that's, those numbers are very much shifting as buildings become more efficient. Um, but that's why those are targets for, for us to work in the building industry and understand what carbon means to buildings. And again, that's a, a huge opportunity we have to both eliminate or reduce carbon operations, making buildings energy efficient, and to choose materials that have a low carbon impact. And that includes the mining of the material, the, the transportation, the manufacture and production and and getting it to the site and actually constructing the building so take take a common structural material for example um, steel it takes mining the ore it takes transporting that to the steel mill and and actually producing and manufacturing the raw steel into a steel w flange beam and then you have to then take all of that structure transport it to the site and build with it and and all of that all of those emissions associated with that process are part of what goes into embodied or upfront emissions of a building and as you can imagine those things those emissions are what happen right now. So if we're speaking about a compressed timeline of 10 years of cutting this, these emissions by 2030, those upfront emissions are, are staring us down the face. And, and they're, they're one of the biggest impacts we can, can shift and um, reduce in this. So uh, yeah, to amplify that, the funny thing is that we used to say, you know, if you look right now, about 40% of the carbon emissions, as, as Kelsey was saying, is from operating buildings, and about 10% is the emissions associated with constructing buildings. Another 10% happens to be all the other things we build stuff with, you know, the concrete and steel that goes into roads, et cetera. But right. to pick up on that 40%, the really interesting thing is the split. 30% is yeah. the operating carbon, the carbon emissions associated with operating all the buildings that exist on the whole planet. Some of those buildings were built a century ago. Some of those buildings were built yesterday. Those The total built in um, floor area globally growing by a couple percent per year. The ten, and then there's this 10%, uh, which is the, the emissions associated with the materials, as Kelsey just outlined, of building the buildings. The counterintuitive thing is that the thing that's under the control of designers today with the biggest impact over the next, say, 10 years is the embodied carbon. Because yeah. when we make a net zero building, that's great. Let's win an award. Let's take a victory lap. But all that net zero, if all the buildings that we build today were net zero, all that's going to do is turn down the growth rate on that operational carbon. Maybe even yeah. that growth rate could be turning down to zero. However, every year we're making the choices that go in. Our choices made that year affect uh, that huge 10% swath. So when we look through what the scientists say is the carbon budget, that is how much CO2 do we get to emit and throw up into the atmosphere um, and stay within, say, the 1.5 degree centigrade target or our 2 degree uh, centigrade target, 
The answer is the emissions from just the materials choices we're making of construction could use up that carbon budget in as little as 15 years. And so we have astonishing leverage through those choices, whereas the buildings that were built 20 years ago that are standing there, no one's asking us to go through and, and knock those buildings down and replace them, or even sometimes if they're only 20 years old, even renovate them. So we, that's inaccessible emission. We can't get at that. The people who are switching the grid over to renewables, they can have their help there. But when we ask about design mm-hmm. professionals, architects, uh, mechanical engineers, and so on, our moment of greatest leverage is when we come in every day and we write the spec for that building and we say, which kind of concrete are we going to use? What sort of mechanical system with what kind of refrigerants are we going to use? We are in the point of, you know, when you try to think of how much one person can shift through their choices and their efforts, architects and engineers have some of the highest leverage of any people on the planet. That's why it's so great to be what we're doing. Here, here. We have a lot of power, role power. Well, Z was just mentioning how much the material choice matters, which leads me into a lesson we recently learned in in exactly that, how much nuance to material matters. So I think it's generally an uplifting story that we as builders and as people who have started to learn about embodied carbon, think of concrete as bad. And concrete is thought of as bad because of cement, which goes into it and the process of manufacturing cement and the chemical reaction as cement hardens and becomes structurally sound that it releases carbon dioxide. So it, it's, it has high carbon emissions and simply changing your concrete mix by allowing by specifying, this is again designer power in, in writing your specifications um, and and living by them or or getting them built um, is power that we have. So simply knowing that not accepting concrete as 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 is as found that that's actually something we can change is an opportunity to reduce our carbon by twenty eight percent if if your concrete if your building structure was concrete. Mm-hmm. Um, so changing from a standard concrete mix to using a, a cementitious substitute such as fly ash, um, and, and having a 40% swap for that. So if you have all of your bucket is cement, then take half of it out, put half of half fly ash in and simply that measure, which is structurally equivalent, um, can reduce your carbon by 28%. Yeah. So that's huge over the whole whole of a building, over the sum of a building. And it's something that simple as working with your spec writer and working with your structural engineer to get this concrete better. And the, the, the thing that Kelsey's presence here has helped us really tease through in the next generation out is the first step is to, you know, say this material on average is, is better than that material. And so there's a, you know, what is it, Michael Pollan, his, the summary of his 800-page uh, Omnivore's Dilemma book is eat food, not too much, yep. mostly plants. And uh, uh, in uh, the world of embodied carbon, it's, you know, build buildings, not too many, mostly wood. And, and that's sort of an interesting starting mantra. But in fact, what, what has come up, and the, the people who are really leading this field, like in Bruce King's book, The New Carbon Architecture, what they point out is that um, good concrete has a lower carbon footprint than bad wood. Yeah. And so we need to become carbon competent even to that next level of subtlety to understand that not all of these things are created equal. And we need to find a way that specification 
um, you know, can uh, get to uh, significantly lower um, uh, embodied carbon, and it sets up the incentives. If people are demanding it, then the you know the suppliers will continue to respond. So there's a um, uh, this uh, uh, act called Buy Clean California that was passed, uh, I guess, a year or two ago, and it's just kind of slowly phasing in. Uh, is one that says, "Hey, the total embodied carbon of your project. If you're doing a project that gets state funding, you have to be in the top 25 percentile. That is to say, the lowest 25th percentile or better of embodied carbon of carbon emissions." Um, if your project is a state-funded project. And so people are scrambling to get the tools that will allow them to even prove that that's true. Um, but it's set up in a way that every three years they're going to announce, hi, we've done this study based on the, all the buildings and projects built in the last three years. Here's what they were able to achieve. Here's the new 25th percentile. Okay, that's the new bar. So it's a self-correcting system that will race to better and better embodied carbon performance. We're used to, for those who've been working in the energy field for a while, the Energy Star system, which is set up in the same way. It says um, your Energy Star, if you're in the lowest 25% of um, uh, uh, energy use per square foot per year, and then in theory with the survey data getting updated every three years, every three years there's an automatic raising of the bar, and there's great consternation and complaining if an if a office building that had a beautiful Energy Star logo in the lobby, if they have to take it down because when they updated the survey, you've slipped from being the 78th percentile to now you're in the 70th percentile. And uh, there was, you know, initially the request became from building owners, please go back to the old standard so we can hold on to our, our pretty plaque. But I'll tell you, I work in a very sad 1978 office building um, where the owners are investing heavily because they have lost their Energy Star certification and they want to upgrade it. The strange beneficiary is that the building is going to get more comfortable and therefore compared with other properties, they think that they'll actually uh, become more competitive um, as a place to rent office space. But this is all this notion of a learning environment that learns from the distribution uh, that there is very that is there is natural variation and there is selection. For those who remember from high school biology, this is this was Darwin's dangerous idea was that there was natural variation, and then there was a world of uh, overproduction and over you know overpopulation and then natural selection. So you need there to be natural variation and you need there to be a selection function. And so I think what's interesting is the Energy Star set up a mechanism for that in operational energy performance. And now we're and by Clean California sets up the exact same idea in in the world of embodied carbon or upfront carbon emissions. And so everyone's just grappling with how to even track this stuff and how to even talk about it. But I think we're seeing, I think we've set up the framework right for a kind of race to much better performance. And it, it's a mix of architects and and industry professionals. So this conversation has has really become very rich and everyone's working together in the same essence of buy clean California. So there's industry leaders are recognizing in order for them to to sell product, they need to make the product better. And exactly what Z was saying, how do you measure that? So there's environmental product declarations for things from structural components to curtain walls that report their global warming potential. So this is something that I think is a pretty approachable thing for designers to become carbon competent in 
looking at weighing their options because the recycled content of aluminum versus completely virgin aluminum is going to have a lower upfront carbon emissions because the material has already been accounted for. And so it's not to say that all designers need to go out and learn how to do a life cycle analysis for their buildings. You can start to look at EPDs or you can start to look at tools put out by the Carbon Leadership Forum or a new one that's about to roll out yeah. um, in November, the EC3 tool. And these are all working with industry leaders who report their emissions through EPDs. And it's a database of all of these EPDs. So you can say, oh, my building's going to be built out of steel and I know it's from this manufacturer. And you start to get a benchmark of how much your building is going to weigh in at in terms of carbon. And it's it's a very approachable, user-friendly option that that gives you a benchmark. So you, you at least know what's attainable or achievable without having to do all the calculations and all the spreadsheets and um, and just start to understand what design choices, what implications those have. Uh, so there's actually like a Pareto law potentially right here. So these, these databases are coming online. Um, but at the same time, we need to be designing, we're, we are designing buildings right now. And um, I'm not sure that we need to wait um, for the robust databases to, to know that wood is a better choice than concrete or steel for structures, that natural insulation materials are better than uh, plastic, you know, petroleum-based insulations, um, lighter materials from closer by. And Yes, I think, I think the idea of having kind of working intuitions of the probably you won't do too bad if you go in this direction is a place to start. I think what's key is if we think about um, think about all the things that people did to make quote unquote energy efficient buildings that did work and didn't because you know what is it there's the um, Mark Twain thing about uh, it's not what we don't it's not the things that we don't know that get us it's the things that we do know that just ain't so so if, if you yeah. um, talk to a lot of architects I remember the first time I asked I was in a room full of people at a university project and I said what do you think it means to be a green building and one of the professors, who was not an architecture professor, but he was, a, I think, a civil engineer by training, actually, originally, said, lots and lots of glass. And um, because to him, lots and lots of glass meant lots and lots of sun, and sun was inherently a green and good thing. And, you know, we know today, because we do have better accounting, that there's a point of diminishing returns. And in fact, if architects led to their own devices and unconstrained yeah. by budgets, we'll probably tend to overglaze buildings rather than underglaze them. So um, mm -hmm. uh, I think there's uh, setting up what you, when you talk about the Pareto um, idea of the kind of quick rules of thumb that get us going in the right way. And, and, you know, the first order is maybe wood is probably better than um, concrete, uh, all things being equal. If you don't know anything about it, um, you know, um, average wood probably has a lower embodied carbon or carbon emissions than average concrete. So far, so good. Uh, the next level out is to make, um, to set up the rules so we make that without having to do much analysis, we'll make reasonable choices. And I think the analogy to that is we have energy codes and we have building codes. And um, there's always a prescriptive path that says, if you do this, do this, do this, do this, and do this, you pass. 
And then we eventually people say, yeah, but I have this special project that has the special constraints and so on. And so we set up the performance path where we say, okay, if tell us what the needs with the size and whatever of your building are, and we will calculate, say in the case of energy, the operational energy use of that building. If we just built it with all of the prescriptive requirements, this much insulation, this efficient uh, air conditioning system, and so on. And that's your energy budget. And now you're free using simulation to meet that energy budget any way you see fit or to go to optimize it even better. Uh, and that's how those tools that we now use to optimize energy performance were just originally built so to allow people flexibility. Well, the same thing's going to be true in embodied carbon, where we're going to start out with um, the kind of simple rules of thumb ways of doing things. And for 98% of the buildings or 90% of the buildings or at least 80% of the buildings, that'll probably be a good enough way to set people on the path to um, better uh, consequences. And then on those kind of really push the limits projects, we're going to have more sophisticated tools. So I think the spirit of what you said, I want to, I want to um, echo and applaud, which is um, simple rules uh, of uh, there are simple approaches you could enunciate for lower carbon design, which is, you know, things like, you know, if you can build it out of wood, that's probably a good place to start. If you're going to build it next, if, if wood is inappropriate for any set of reasons, a steel and steel that you can uh, in the future disassemble and recycle is probably going to be a good, um, a good next position. Um, concrete is astonishing in what it can do. And in some situations, there's nothing like it. But when you start out with a higher carbon choice, um, then, then it brings with it the kind of responsibility to do a little bit more homework. Um, and so, for example, you can imagine Kelsey did an analysis on a project where for complete flexibility in a, in a we're building in it, we were doing a project where there was an um, absolute height limit for the project. The property owner had run the financials, the developer, and wanted to get a certain amount of uh, square footage um, uh, onto that site. And so to get the maximum number of floors to fit within that building height limit, um, uh, doing uh, the project out of um, flat slab concrete uh, was a very attractive way to do it. Well, there are low-carbon ways to make flat slab, uh, both by changing the mix in the ways that Kelsey's already um, enumerated. There's fancier structures like bubble deck, where you're using, you're saying that the the concrete at the top and the bottom of the slab do all the heavy lifting and tension and compression, um, and the stuff in the middle is actually pretty lazy. And so they fill that void with uh, bubbles of recycled uh, uh, plastic, essentially, a little tiny softball-sized bubbles or, or basketball-sized bubbles, depending on the slab. And so that's a way to make a much lower carbon footprint um, flat slab that gets you to that same high, uh, you know, very tight floor-to-ceiling rate, um, uh, uh, spacing um, while uh, getting you there with a the lower carbon. So I think uh, setting up these sets of approaches and prescriptions that people can use uh, is going to be the key to implementing this at scale. Because most projects, you're never going to be able to, just like on most projects, it's really hard to afford to do an energy model. Um, and so that's why we have prescriptive approaches that get tighter and tighter or every three You mean years. an operational? An operational, an operational energy model. Energy. So you can imagine that we have the same... Uh, sets of approaches that just say, here's the prescriptive path to lower carbon. And if you think your project is so special that you need to really push the bounds, go right ahead, but you have to do more math. You've taunted me with this 
one question so many times, the two of you. You mentioned EC3. You've talked about concrete a few times. I want to talk about LC3, um, lime calcined clay cement. Are you having any any luck finding places that you can procure that? It, it's a lower embodied carbon um, cement cement material. I've tried to encourage designers to spec it here, but apparently it's not available in central Texas. Yeah, I think you've touched on something, which is uh, uh, that example. There's lots of others. We, we had a project where we were pursuing flat slab and telling ourselves it's okay because we're going to use high fly ash, high slag concrete. And then we put it in the spec and our structural engineer who was um, kind of um, doing the yeah, yeah, yeah sort of interaction with the green architects um, took our spec and he added two little words where we had said 25% fly ash and 15% uh, slag. He inserted the two little words up to 25% fly ash and up to 15% slag. And um, by doing that, and it just didn't get caught, what he basically said, there was nothing required. And then when it went to the contractor, he was working in a region where there was really only one um, concrete plant within 70 miles of this construction site. And they, their equipment was just not set up to use slag at all. And fly ash in their part of the country has actually become scarce because, yay, congratulations, we're burning much less coal. And what that means is there's yeah. much, much less fly ash being generated. So that's great news. Yeah. Let's take a victory lap. But the other thing that fly ash is fantastic at is you use that in concrete and it helps the concrete's resistance to water. And so if you're building right. a dam uh, or if you're building a highway project where the footings have to stand in water below the water table, you want high fly ash concrete. And it has nothing to do with you're trying to be good about carbon footprint. You're just trying to do it because otherwise your carbon will, your concrete will fall apart. So I'm certainly in favor if they're building a dam, I want them to be using the high fly ash concrete that will get them uh, what they need. So um, we ended up with this situation where the, um, where the, um, uh, general contractor got back to us in the submittal and said, I can do 7% fly ash maybe and no slag. And, and it's because of this local availability. So I think we do face this problem, mm -hmm. which is that there's going to be a lot of regional variation in these solutions. And um, there's also going to be regional opportunities. So let me tell a story. Um, I used to, before I, um, you know, I wasted the first 49 years of my life and then I moved to Louisiana 10 years ago. Um, and, um, but before I moved here, uh, I was living in Vancouver, British Columbia, where um, um, the recycling of gyp gypsum wallboard is mandatory. And, um, or it was certainly, it was available on all these projects. And I said, why is this so available? I've not heard of this anywhere. And they said, well, the premier, um, uh, somehow got wind of, uh, that it, there was a tremendous fraction of what was going in with all the construction going on in Vancouver into the landfills was, was gypboard. And so he simply said, we're just not going to allow any, um, landfill in the lower mainland of British Columbia to accept we just, they just passed a little law that said you are no longer starting next year going to be allowed to send gypboard to the dump. And spontaneously, they're generating wow. a gypboard recycling facility. And so that was a local opportunity to generate a new industry. So now they have this really great gypboard recycling industry that is actually receiving gypboard from all around. Um, so I think that what can happen is... Um, each of these technologies that you've talked about, whether um, 
uh, uh, the one that you cited, or even just Flyash, yeah, and so on. Those are going to come about, and it will take people cleverly setting up rules um, that say this is the way you have to do it. Um, Mm -hmm. There's um, ecosystems to. Exactly. And I think equipment for the manufacturing process to to find a way to use these new mixtures or new materials that don't necessarily right. require mm-hmm. complicating the manufacture process. Um, it's that's that's a very ideal view, but but to to simplify, you know, all the 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 good example here is is Apple and changing the charger all the time on your right. phone. And now you can't charge and use your headphones at the same time. And you have all these toggles that, that are added on and, and minimizing that as well. So that, so that we can start producing now and immediately and, and all over so that it isn't simply a re- regional problem. It's accessible to everyone or accessible where the material is accessible, making that simple. So I believe that the Bike Clean California rule will help set up the creation of uh, supply chains in that region of producing uh, the lower carbon alternatives. Because if you want to play ball and win a state contract, you'll have to, you know, you maybe you come the only game in town. So that kind of action will help. There are also actions where that are, um, you know, a monopoly is when the uh, su- the number of suppliers is yeah. so small that it can move the market. There's this other effect called monopsony, where there are a few purchasers who are such a big impact on the market that they can change the market that way. So if Microsoft and Google and Facebook for all of their projects make certain requirements, that will be enough to change the availability in all the major markets where they are building and operating facilities. Um, if we think about the effect that lead had, you know, let's face it, lead, there are only, um, you know, ta-da, there are 100,000 lead commercial bu- uh, projects out there. Well, that's that's great, except <laughs> there's 5.6 uh, commercial buildings in the U.S. So it's not like that could possibly be uh, a major fraction, although it's all the big buildings in the major markets of San Francisco and New York and so on. You can't be a serious Class A office building newly constructed if you're not lead certified. Them being there and in the market has made the market for things like low VOC paints. So 25 years ago, I was um, renovating a house, and I wanted to get some of this really cool low or no VOC paint. And at the time, you had to special order it from Germany. It was astonishingly expensive. Lead, by doing what it did and creating a credit around low VOC paints and finishes, created enough of a market that now... Every um, hardware store in America has a low VOC or a zero VOC paint um, alternative. It's not because everybody's doing lead certified homes. It's because there was enough in effect to bring the cost down. Mm-hmm. And same thing with formaldehyde. But what, what do you guys know about or do you um, lead and their leadership on uh, CO2E, uh, embodied carbon? So so my knowledge is they're, they're really just getting started on this. And um, and it's in mm. lead 4.0 and 4.1. And they do have a credit for life cycle analysis. So it's a three-point credit. And it's, it's actually quite tricky to achieve. But they are looking at you modeling and somehow. So this is kind of a performance path, not a prescriptive path. They're not saying you have to hit... 30 pounds of carbon uh, dioxide equivalent per square foot, they're saying, show us how you reduced your carbon in this structure. So that might mean using a Revit model and bringing that into tally and showing a design choice that you went through of, of a concrete flat slab to a post-tension slab and showing that 
through using this tool and through thinking of life cycle analysis of carbon, you chose a reduced measure. And, and that's kind of what they're looking for in terms of carbon, as far as I know. And, and I think there's a little bit about recycled content, which you could argue has a, has a lot to do with helping carbon, but the recycled content factor was there before the embodied carbon, um, initiative. So I like to say that, you know, uh, the U S green at the U S green building council, we make the complicated simple and vice versa. (laughs) So they managed to make some simple ideas, very complicated. Um, and you know, your head hurts sometimes looking at the way that the credits have been structured. I certainly understand the intent. Um, I think what's going to be a real game changer, it's nice for the lead projects out there and, and the and the market transformation capability that lead has had. I think, nevertheless, all that said, um, you know, uh, time's up. We only have a decade to make a major turnaround. So where I'm more excited, if you will, is the shifts that are happening, If starting with um, in the U.K., the um, their equivalent of the AIA is called REBA, the Royal Institute of British Architects. And REBA has just announced a 2030 climate challenge, they call it, where they set an absolute, um, they've made it like really, really simple or simplified, um, but aggressive. Um, Ronald Reagan famously, when someone accused him of, of always having easy answers, he said, no, I have simple answers. I didn't say they were easy. And I think that, you know, we should like own that uh, approach when we talk about environmental advocacy, yeah. um, I think we should come up with simpler answers that aren't necessarily easier answers. So in this context, what Reba has done is they've said, we've just surveyed what the operational carbon emissions are of the average, what we would call a commercial building. They call it a non-domestic building. Non-domestic. And then uh, uh, residential buildings, which they call domestic buildings there. And they say, here's the, they, they're going to break everything into just these two chunks and then they say, um, uh, here's the average value in 2019. Here's our target for 2020. Here's our target for 2025. And here's our target for 2030. For operational carbon, it's zero by 2030 for all new construction. For embodied carbon, it's, you know, values of, you know, kilograms per square meter. Um, but what's intriguing is that they're going to take a whole portfolio mm-hmm. approach. Um, so it's not about let's give you an award because you did this one super sensitive building while 90% of your stuff is just business as usual. Um, They're going to set up a system modeled on the AIA 2030 commitment where you enter every project you work on. And if you don't know the answer, it'll assign you the default. So that gives you the incentive to know the answer. Um, And meanwhile, the AIA because of their membership passing this climate resolution last summer is doing the same thing that they're going to set up, they're going to adapt their AIA 2030 commitment, which so far has only been uh, focused on operational carbon, uh, operational energy, actually, that you can convert that to carbon. And they're going to um, provide a mechanism for tracking and improving uh, carbon, uh, um, uh, upfront carbon emissions that is embodied carbon. So this notion of coming up with um, a way of keeping score of everything you do and of raising the bar every every few years um, is, is, you know, how we're going to get there. We're making progress on the 2030 commitment. Um, intriguingly, there's only 500 firms have ever signed the AIA 2030 commitment. Only 250 firms hmm. report regularly. But those 250 firms, the reporting, the, the stuff that they're designing that's in the 2030 commitment is equal to 30% of all that's commercial right. construction in the United States. And so 
that notion of being able to track that much and to set up the bar to improve things for that at that kind of scale is how we're going to have really significant impacts. Likewise, the adoption of more aggressive codes uh, through things like the zero code first developed by the Architecture 2030 people is going to set it up so that there's a prescriptive path for both operational carbon and uh, embodied carbon that that people who are doing every project from a carport expansion onward um, can uh, can take advantage of. And that's where this thing starts to really happen at scale. It's going to be at least simple, if not necessarily easy. So I'd like to bring it in for a landing. But first, before the show, before the interview, we were talking, Kelsey and I were talking about a a fairly simple example, but not necessarily easy, that you had done, Kelsey, looking at an aluminum, I believe it was an aluminum shading structure, which would save some operational energy. Could you discuss that briefly? Yeah. So we, early on, this was actually with Corey Squire as well, early on, and I had a counterpart when I started here at SQ Dumez Ripple, Kevin He, who's a grad student currently. So he was here for three months and we looked at what what is often thought of as architectural, sustainable architectural decisions to reduce embodied, right. or to reduce, excuse me, operational carbon operational energy, if those measures are actually effective. So we were looking at aluminum louvers, wood louvers, and glass louvers on a building facade. And and do those actually save as much energy as they're worth? So what we found was the, the payback in terms of this 10-year time period isn't worth it. That the embodied energy, the energy that goes into these materials themselves doesn't save enough energy. And this was a local um, New Orleans-based climate example, but it doesn't offset the energy that's saved right. through through your operational energy mm, system. Just ain't so. so. So sometimes these things are not... The, what you think is sustainable, this is the danger of the rule of thumb, right? Sometimes what you think is a sustainable rule, you actually need to run the numbers on. Yeah. But correct me if I'm wrong, eventually it would save enough energy to offset its embodied presence, right? I mean, if the building were a thousand year sitting there unchanged, which is unrealistic, I realize, but isn't there some sort of time frame? You said it was unrealistic to do it. Right. You can just think of there's a crossover period and that that's applied to any strategy. So for example, the classic right. one was, you right. know, when people yeah. first started using solar cells and we knew that, you know, how you made a solar cell was you started with molten <laughs> silicon. So there was obviously a lot of energy used in making a solar cell and people said, ah, well, maybe those things are net generators of energy out in space on the satellites, but down here on earth, you know, are how many years of running the solar cell, does it take before you get back the energy it took to make it? And that 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 crossover period, you know, started out at 20 years, and that's kind of worrisome because the solar mm-hmm. module might only be warranted for 25. Well, now these days, Kelsey, I think you could speak to this, but I think it's somewhere between a year and a half and two years is, is pretty typical. Is that not right? Uh, yeah, I had between two and three years, but it's it's before three years, certainly, that, that solar is worthwhile. Yeah, and so, you know, that's the obvious one is is that if you if you have a life cycle to the thing you're thinking of, um, you certainly want its embodied carbon or energy uh, to be one where the, the payback is less than how long you expect the thing to last. Um, a good example in mechanical systems would be the use of re- um, refrigerant-heavy mechanical systems. We all, you know, the current darling is to use variable refrigerant flow systems, yeah. and they have certain just undeniable amazing advantages to make a, a really low energy of operation building. 
Um, and the challenge is that um, yep. the realistic question is how long will that refrigerant stay inside that system versus leak out slowly when the thing is being serviced or, you know, at, during a major renovation when they pick up and move things around if that stuff leaks into the air because that's, uh, those refrigerants are a major global warming potential. Um, and so we have to start looking at those numbers very carefully. Um, uh, uh, another example that was really, uh, I think Dave White had a really great, uh, 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 there was a really great article once in Environmental Building News where they pointed out that if you're making passive house ex- um, on building envelopes, if you just keep adding, say, styrofoam uh, to the uh, building envelope, the challenge is that you know each additional inch of styrofoam, uh, because the, the um uh, the annual energy law uh, through that building envelope goes as the inverse. You get less and less energy saved for each additional inch of insulation, and yet each additional inch yeah. um, has that much more global warming potential. So there's a point at which when you add another inch of insulation, um, uh, of rigid board insulation uh, to a building, you're actually making the life cycle, the lifetime global warming potential of the building worse. And so working that math through um, is helpful. And now what that right. leads to is what I think, to, and it does bring it full circle is simple, you know, we can come back to simpler rules, which is, um, yes, yes. Use a lot of insulation. If you're really sure that it's low global warming potential insulation. And so that leads you away from say nice plastic time. and foamed insulations towards, yeah. um, uh, other, uh, insulation systems. So we develop those intuitions. We set out those simple rules so that practitioners can make quick choices. And then when they really want to push the envelope, so to speak, um, they can make more nuanced choices and do more careful calculations. We could just go on and on about this, you guys. That insulation topic alone is something that it's worth a whole episode worth of conversation. I'd really like to go into it. And perhaps I will uh, humbly request maybe we will do this some more. You guys have been fantastic to talk with. You said a few important things I want to summarize, and then I have uh, one last question for each of you. Some of the things were, now is the time to become more carbon fluent. Um, You were very clear on that. This thing about adjectives matter. Um, When you say the word energy as part of a project team, what was the preceding adjective? Was it it operational energy or embodied energy? Um, And then the the leverage and the role power of architects and engineers. It's, it's a very important role in society. Um, and you know, the Spider-Man quote applies with great power comes great responsibility. <laughs> and I know, you know, another thing I really want to emphasize, I love the, that's great. the idea of simple, not necessarily easy, right? Because it is so easy to make things seem complicated. In fact, early on, you mentioned brute force or how if, you know, the brute force isn't working, apply more brute force. And what I immediately clued into was like, and the brute force we use is exergy destruction, you know, this usable energy, we just destroy it. But then I realized, oh, that's not a simple concept. You have to unpack the word exergy now. Mm-hmm. We'll leave that for another day, listeners, or, or Google it. I think we're finding in many of our projects, um, our firm as an architectural practice um, has maybe made a name for itself on doing um, high performance buildings. Um, for people who weren't necessarily in the market for uh, a highly sustainable or even a high performance building, that it was provided as what we say here in Louisiana is lanyap, a little something extra. It's just the way we work. 
Um, architects are used to spending lots of time that the client didn't ask, agonizing over the color choice of the walls or the countertop material. And most people don't criticize architects for spent, you know, the client never asked them to do that, but they spend a lot of time trying to sweat the details um, on things that, if you will, weren't asked for. They weren't, the client wasn't opposed to it, but it was just really, did you have to spend that much time? If you told them by hour how much how much how you would spend your time on that project they might be surprised so when we ask people to start spending time to be aware and make good choices uh, we're people sometimes say yes well i'm not being paid any fee for that there's no time guys give it up yeah if you're waiting for clients to come to you with a big extra dollop of money to go do the right thing um you're in the wrong field you should be doing the right thing because you have this tremendous power and you can make that choice, and you are the expert. So um, just do it. The one thing that I've learned from our practice, though, is that we are um, beautiful. Uh, where our role in the ecosystem among architects is to do unexpectedly good work and unexpectedly high performance work for clients who weren't necessarily asking for it and who certainly didn't have the budget. And sometimes what that comes down to is just doing less of the wrong thing. So among designy architects, uh, there's a tendency to, when in doubt, use more glass. And so you have to think really hard if you're going to use less glass to make a building that is still delightful to be in and looks really cool. And yet what we find is in our yeah. uh, home region where we have where that glass will have to be hurricane rated, glass is an expensive thing. And so it wasn't like, it wasn't that by um, reducing the glass, we actually made the building both perform better and be cheaper. So it's sometimes a, a trap to always think in terms of, yes, but what is the additional expense to make this better performing building? Part of it is just, you know, clients are tired of paying for stupid. And uh, what they're looking for us to do is to make smarter choices, uh, to make more balanced choices and more measured choices. So we can make really high performing buildings. We can make lower carbon buildings. Uh, and what that is required to do that is to just be a little bit more thoughtful. And uh, sometimes it can turn out that that lower carbon, higher performing building is actually cheaper. And that makes us a hero in the eyes of our clients. Well said. Okay, Kelsey, can you uh, follow up similarly? You mentioned this beautiful idea earlier about we're afraid of the dark. So turn the light on and uh, you won't be in the dark. Do you have any other maybe inspirational or motivational thoughts to help particularly leaders at firms that have the role power and the status power to uh, make these decisions happen. Yeah. So we're talking a lot about responsibility and the power of adv advocacy we have. And I think something that's important to note that even as a leader at a firm, that doesn't necessarily mean you have to be a principal or a founder. You can become that leader any second you choose to, as soon as you start to educate yourself and share this knowledge. And there, there really is an abundance of resources like this podcast and many others and, um, yeah. the tools that I mentioned before and, and the responsibility doesn't have to be yours alone. You, you can start that conversation and I think you'll be surprised how many people are interested in care and, and similarly uh, taking that across fields of collaboration or, you know, we always finesse a building through teamwork with our mechanical engineers and our structural engineers. And, and we're never, 
doing the whole building alone anyway. So it's the same approach with carbon that, uh-huh. that we're finessing the embodied carbon through really working with our structural engineers to, to make a smart structure, make good decisions in structure and working both with, with the architects and the mechanical um, engineers on the building envelope and making it perform well. And then, and then the next step is, is doing what we kind of already know how to do. Once you're already tired from all of this, then you use a good HVAC system, which we've, which we've strained for years over, but you combine all these things through a team and it just takes starting to say this matters and, and, and you lead that, whether you're, whether you think you have the responsibility or not, we all do. And you don't have to be, um, the project manager to do it. You, you know, it's, you're, you're doing the drawings. If you have your hands in the drawings, you have, you have the power. Wonderful. Wonderful. Z, do you have any, uh, final thought? No, I, I just, I feel like I'm really smart because I hired Kelsey. <laughs> well, I'm learning I, every day from Z, so I am so, so grateful. Yes, and I'm so grateful. I feel like I'm really smart because I, I managed to get you two guys on here for an interview. Thank you so so much. The caring that you provide, you're bringing to your careers and our society is so important, and I certainly appreciate it. Um, and thank you all. Well, thanks for doing oh, what you do. You. Yeah, th- thanks for having us. It was fun to talk with you. Yeah, we'll do more. And, and thank you all for listening. We'll talk to you next time. Bye.